Um, <laughs> I don't even know where to begin. I know. Uh, how are you feeling? Exhausted, scared, um, yeah. worn out. I think everybody is. It feels as though the last two days have been this cataclysmic kind of realization that this is really happening. Yeah. Uh, so tired. Do you get accused of that? Like the the, the Brits mumble? Uh, yeah, I talk to myself all the time. <laughs> all the dogs. Hello and welcome to Don't Touch Your Face, foreign policy's podcast on all things coronavirus. I'm Amy McKinnon, a staff writer here at Foreign Policy. And I'm James Palmer, Foreign Policy's senior editor. Before we begin, if the podcast sounds a little bit different today, a little bit more wonky, that's because I'm currently sitting in my closet staring at all of my clothes and a suitcase and a pile of shoes. And James is across town huddled under a duvet somewhere um in short like a lot of people we're we're now working from home and these slightly ridiculous recording arrangements um, allow for the best sound so please bear with us uh, for today although we do have some high quality mobile podcast studio stuff on order while everybody else is stockpiling toilet paper we've been stockpiling sound equipment i know <laughs> and we've had a slightly even to get to this stage it's been a long day and it's been comedic and frustrating at points um james i didn't even tell you that you know so we ordered a, a lift chair to pick up a, a sd card recorder from my apartment and to take it to james's apartment and james when dan our editor said okay the uber is three minutes away i couldn't find the damn thing it it slipped into one of those secret pockets in my backpack that you don't even know is there and so the uber is outside and the you know the, the clock is ticking down and i'm tearing my backpack apart tearing the apartment apart and managed to make a fantastic mess finally found it ran outside in bare feet and of course the you know the driver is waiting for you know a guy called dan to come out and out comes this barefoot woman in denim overalls waving a piece of (laughs) waving a card reader at him and he just i kind of like leapt into the back and i was like please take this across town (laughs) he just gave me this look um then of course the the sd card reader never made it to you. Yeah, I went downstairs in my in my pajamas because I've also been trying to maintain a sort of inside outside clothes distinction. Um and sort of, you know, everybody was greeted to the side of this very large man searching to see like if I was a card reader, where would I be? <laughs> oh, and I've definitely touched my face a lot of times today, mostly putting my head in my hands. Yeah, it's been a, a day I think of national fear, despair, um worry all those bad words as we speak on thursday i think there's a sense that the press conference on wednesday night by donald trump revealed just the depths of malicious criminal incompetence coming out of the american leadership at the moment on a scale equaling or exceeding anything i saw from the communist party in china frankly Wow. I mean, that's a very pointed word, criminal. I think that the the decision which seems to have been deliberate to focus on keeping the numbers, not the actual cases, but the number of cases that was revealed to the American public down Mm -hmm. is just a disaster and a disaster, as most disasters are, caused by human intervention as much as by nature. Mm. And on that cheerful note, let's talk (laughs) about what the borders are going to look like. 
On that cheerful note, I mean, Trump's uh, speech on Wednesday night ties in, actually. We had planned to do this topic anyway for the podcast, but it it ties in because today we're going to be looking at biosecurity and borders. Um, And later on in the episode, we're going to talk to Bruce Schneer, a security technologist and professor at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government. And we're going to take a little bit of a look into the future today at what the world might look like if the coronavirus is here for the foreseeable future how countries may respond to protect themselves. Are they going to close borders? Are they going to close borders to people coming in from select countries? It's already become very clear that how quickly a country responds to an outbreak and how aggressively makes all the difference at the bottom line in terms of the number of cases they have, but also the number of fatalities. I mean, James, we spoke a bit yesterday about how, um, you know, different countries are, are very, you know, different in their approach to this and in in the degree to which they can handle the outbreak. But do you think we're going to see a situation where some countries are going to have either eradicated or at least tightly contained the virus, while in others it's going to run rampant? That certainly seems like a strong possibility. I mean, if we look at South Korea at the moment and assume that South Korea is sort of the optimistic scenario for the future of developed countries with good testing, then we see somewhere where the outbreak has been contained where numbers are dropping. Um, Even in China, though with China it's always hard to tell and the scale makes it very difficult, the quality of the data makes it very difficult. The the bulk of this initial outbreak has been contained. Now, that doesn't mean that we're not going to see future outbreaks in either country. Um, But it's quite possible to imagine a scenario where in, you know, three, four months time, some countries have this as a a periodic outbreak and in some countries it's endemic and i fear that the countries in which it's endemic may well end up being of course the poorest and least developed countries though it's also quite possible at the moment that it will just become endemic everywhere um especially if the the quality of leadership continues as it has been in the united states And what kind of situation could that lead to if you have some countries in which it's endemic and others where it's more contained? Imagine a scenario in which the coronavirus runs rampant throughout Africa or India, but has been relatively contained in Europe or America. That's one where biosecurity would become the new excuse to close these borders, to shut out these people. And can you just explain... um... You know, what is biosecurity? What does that mean? So biosecurity are just the procedures that are intended to protect us against uh, disease agents, infectious agents. Um, That includes washing your hands. Washing your hands is biosecurity. And it comes in all kinds of levels from the extreme measures that you would use if you were working in a, a virus lab, for instance, to telling your kid to get his dirty little feet off the table. But there are also ways in which biosecurity, like all security, can become a sort of god unto itself, a way to shut out things, particularly when you start to see other people not as people, but as potential carriers, as agents of disease themselves. And we've seen that deployed against, for instance, Haitians by the Dominican Republic in the past. And we've seen that deployed uh, by Trump against um, Central American refugees, the claim that they were carrying diseases, that they were infectious. It's a common pattern throughout human history. And we're seeing these biosecurity measures come into place on borders, temperature checks, for instance, that are very widely used in China, showing evidence that you've not been in a virus hit zone. That's the kind of future that I'm worried about, at least in the next year or two. 
And, you know, we've seen after 9-11, of course, security measures that were put in place then, supposedly to stop terrorism, continued until today. Uh, these things, once they come down, they have a nasty habit of becoming permanent. I mean, it's already very difficult for... I mean, it's difficult for me to get a visa for the, to the United States. There's a lot of paperwork and a lot of waiting, and you, you've been through the same, but... We, we are both, coming... according to the United States of America, geniuses, I believe, is the technical <laughs> term, Amy. Um, talented aliens. Oh, that's it. Was it g- gifted aliens. Gifted aliens. Like yeah. But it's still a pain. It's still a pain in the arse. Um, and there's a lot of hoops to jump through. But I mean, the stories I've heard from people who are applying for, you know, work visas or green cards, it's already so many hoops to jump through and can take a year or even more. And then if you think that if you add in a layer of biosecurity considerations into that, it just, I mean, it boggles the mind of how it could just bog the system down. And think of the. Uh, levels of corruption that are going to be involved in this too. Now, one of the things in China is that you have to have a medical test for pretty much any resident visa there. Mm. And until the Olympics, you were able to do these medical tests at any pretty much any facility in Beijing. But yeah. then a single facility essentially bought up the rights, which was way on the edge of the city. So you had to traipse out there, pay a fee that they then jacked up five times. And they would give you the most cursory of supposed medical tests. I had a friend who had had colon cancer and had had his whole colon removed, used a colostomy bag, which mm. the medical examiner didn't note during the examination. So you, so you can very easily imagine not only that you, these systems get put in place, but that they become vehicles for corruption and not that useful in themselves. So earlier, James spoke over Skype with Bruce Schneer, a security expert with the Harvard Kennedy School of Government. Here's their conversation. So, Bruce, you're a leading security expert. Um, you've been covering this for years. What kind of measures are we going to see as a result of the coronavirus when it comes to borders? You know, we don't know. It seems like uh, locking borders is not what is effective, but people do all sorts of uh, crazy things out of fear. And I don't think we can predict what's going to happen. There's a lot we don't know about the virus, a lot we don't know about how people are going to react, uh, how fear will spread, information on rumors. So I don't think we can guess what the politics will be from either history, the, the pharmacology, or from anything. What do we know from the past about what works in terms of persuading people to take sensible security precautions. Are there any lessons we can learn there? So actionable. Sensible works if it's something you can tell people to do and they can do it. Wash your hands is a great piece of advice. Avoid large groups. Don't touch your face. People can do that. And if they believe it's important, they will do it. But the more nebulous the vice is, the more confusing and open to interpretation, the less compliance you get because people just don't know how to follow it. So mixed messages make a big difference here. I mean, we've seen um, the president playing down the scale of the of the epidemic, the pandemic, even as the CDC and other authorities go into panic mode. Uh, does that confuse people? Does it make a big difference? It makes a huge difference because suddenly people don't know what to believe. They believe according to their politics. And now we just don't have a unified defense. A lot of what we have to do here is come together as a species It's important to have a unified message. People need to know what's happening and what they can do. And if they're giving conflicting advice, they're going to believe 
different things and we won't get the same behavior. We need to come together as a species to delay the spread of this virus. That's how we're going to do best as a species. And the more we are unified on what we're doing, the better we're going to do. We've seen China and other countries adopting the existing security tools, such as gated communities, facial recognition, contact tracing, to uh, attempt to halt the spread of the virus. Are countries' existing security regimes going to play a big part in how they react to this? We have no choice. There's no time to invent new security systems. We have to use the tools we have. And you go to a totalitarian country, you'll see totalitarian tools. You go to a democratic country, you like South Korea, you will see a much more voluntary democratic approach. And that's going to mesh best with society. It'll work with the uh, tools available, and it'll be what's effective. Nobody can change fast enough, and that's probably a good thing too. So in the United States, that means using the tools of democracy, going through state and local governments and the existing organizations, rather than sort of trying to, to set up new systems from scratch or pushing for more authoritarian approaches? And that's right. You'll find countries using whatever they have. And if local governments are what's strong, they'll countries use that. If it's national governments, uh, tools of the press, you'll find that uh, trusted speakers, celebrities, people in sports has served very well in Africa in previous uh, pandemics. And that'll work well here. You know, the fact that Tom Hanks got this disease is a big deal. That's going to galvanize people and people will listen to him because he is trusted as a celebrity. All right. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. That was Bruce Schneer from the Harvard Kennedy School of Government, who joined us via Skype. And on the topic of biosecurity and borders, we had a particularly excellent question from a reader. So we were asked, do the fingerprint scanners at airports get disinfected? And how often do they get disinfected? And, you know, that's a big question because, of course, although you touch a lot of surfaces at airports, there's very few that you're actually asked to press your fingers against for several seconds and uh, sometimes a a minute or more to get the damn thing working. (laughs) And the answer turns out to vary very much by country. At Narita Airport in Tokyo, for instance, they're wiped down literally after every use. Oh, how lovely. I know, I know. But in the US, it seems they often go for half an hour or more without being disinfected in practice. So we would very, very strongly suggest to wash your hands immediately after using a fingerprint scanner. Absolutely. Um, Well, on that delightful note, that's it for today's edition of Don't Touch Your Face. I'm Amy McKinnon. And I'm James Palmer. And thanks for bearing with us as we uh, manage our new deconstructed podcast setup. Hopefully things will be a little bit better tomorrow. Our show is produced by Darcy Palder and Dan Haverty and edited by Rob Sachs. Our web team includes Laurie Kelly and Kelly Kimball. The executive producer for news and podcasts at Foreign Policy is Dan Efron. Thanks for listening. And remember, if you have a question about the coronavirus, you can email us at don'ttouchyourface at foreignpolicy.com or on Twitter using the hashtag DTYFpodcast. And if you've had a corona-related experience and you want to share it with listeners, send us a voice memo to our email address, don'ttouchyourface at foreignpolicy.com. You can vent about your quarantine or let people know how the pandemic is affecting you and your area. Until next time, don't forget to wash your hands. And please, don't touch your face.